You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is the great Nikita Bourdain. Nikita, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I an honor. Oh, yeah. That's all I wanted to say. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry I cut you off. Further. Likewise, likewise, the honor is mine. Uh, um, I want to plug a bunch of your stuff in this in this episode, but I want to begin the conversation by framing the plug from from the perspective of you're an unbelievably busy individual. How do you find the time to do as much as you do? Let's give the short list of the stuff that you're involved with these days. So, okay. At the magnet, you have premiere at the magnet, on Fridays, premiere on Fridays. You're finishing up a run on Wednesdays with uh, deep Queens. Yes. On Wednesdays, on Tuesdays, you perform with wonderland two and a half years strong with wonderland. Then at uh, the annoyance you perform in, in, uh, uh, happy, happy karaoke, karaoke fun time. time. That's a once a month commitment. Okay. Very leisurely okay. once a month. Okay. Then at the pit you perform in which house? Uh, we did Stonehenge. Yeah. That was a four week run that has concluded. Yeah. And uh, I was on a team called Royals. Uh-huh. They're still going, but uh, it conflicted with some magnet okay. stuff. And then back to the magnet. You're now in your second month in a row of, of back-to-back director series. Now you're doing Hall, Hall of Mirrors. Correct. That's Thursday. That's Thursday. So Tuesday through Friday is at the Magnet. Yeah. I feel very blessed. Yeah. And, and, and just doing lots of stuff is a big, big part of your life. Mm-hmm. Are you a very disciplined person? I am very disciplined, yes. Yes, I am. I was born in the Soviet Russia, hmm. and I had Soviet parents. I came here when I was four, so I don't remember much of that upbringing, hmm. but my parents brought that upbringing with them. So they enforced discipline, uh, you know, piano for an hour a day, homework for X amount of time. You know, a lot of rules. Yeah. Did, don't put your feet up on the furniture. You know, a lot of rules yeah. in all aspects. It, it, did they instill just a sense of ethic to you or did they instill like a, a, a passion for, for, for that ethic? So like what I mean is to, to be disciplined and, and manage your time really well. Uh, uh, is that, does that come easy to you? Um, it doesn't necessarily come easy. It's one day at a time. Mm-hmm. It's like, what do I have to do today? And I schedule it out. And that's about as far as I can think. Maybe I can think a week, maybe a month, hmm. real vaguely. But it's like week to week I'm thinking, okay, this week, this is my schedule. This is when I can do my personal life. This is when, when I can do groceries hmm. at this hour on Tuesday or something like that. So you definitely need a lot of planning. Yeah. Yeah. What are you, where do I start? Well, let's start with coming to America at four years old. Great. What do you remember about that? It, 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 Almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I came when I was four straight to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, my memories from before that is like a lamp in Italy. There was like a three-month layover in Italy mm-hmm. for Russian immigrants going to America in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. So we spent three months. We had a lovely beach house. 
I've seen photos. My memories are very vague. I vaguely remember a beach, maybe a turtle, and a lamp, as I said. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe a TV cabinet in Soviet Russia, Mm -hmm. maybe a park. But they're all just faint memories. And I don't know if they're real memories or if they're from pictures I saw. Right. And I think I have those memories. Yeah. I, I, I... Get the, I have a pocket of memories from when I was young looking at photo albums mm-hmm. of me as a baby. There's like a period in your life where you're kind of fascinated with with yourself when you were younger and fascinated with the period right before you were born. I don't know if you had that, but I, I, I had a period where I was very fascinated with the late 70s because it kind of felt like the preamble to my appearance. Yeah. So, I can't say I care much about 82 or before. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, it all starts at 83. Yeah. Reagan. Yeah. I, <laughs> for America. Um, Gorbachev for yeah, Russia? I think so. I don't know. I don't know what year he came in, but yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He was there at the end. Yeah. When it crumbled. It yes. crumbled right after we left. Is that what motivated your family to leave? Uh, I th- what motivated them to leave was uh, a lot of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and just a horrible, just the USSR was just really stuck in an old communist regime that really wasn't working. Mm. Uh, my great-grandfather was uh, murdered by Stalin in 38. Wow. We lost a lot of people in World War II. Yeah. So really not a lot of good, good feelings about uh, Soviet Russia yeah. coming from me, who has no memories of it. How, how did they escape it? They signed up. Uh, I wish I knew more, you know? I wish I knew more about it, but uh, in layman terms, which is how I know them, uh, they signed up to get out when they opened up the gates, and I think they were on a list for like years, at which point they were like lost their jobs, they had to depend on the kindness of their friends, some of which uh, disowned them hmm. at that point, because it was like, you know, kind of bad to want to leave Soviet Russia at the time, so they just it was just a bureaucratic waiting game but the jewish federation helped us get out Mm. they put us in a house in italy for three months until uh we got to america and i think they financially helped us pay for it and they paid for like private hebrew school for me Mm. so i went to hebrew school from kindergarten first grade second grade and then once my family had enough money to support ourselves um like, my dad was an economics professor who became a pizza man in 87. Wow. Once he earned enough money and then got a, went into computers, they pulled me out of private school and put me into the public system because they didn't want me to get too religious. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's an amazing story. It's fun. It gives me a fun uh, outlook. Yeah. I think it's helpful for yeah. improv, my immigrant background, Could even though it's not like prevalent necessarily right. yeah. outside of my unique name. Yeah. Can can you talk about that a little more? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think because English isn't my first language, sometimes I feel like the words that I choose to use are sometimes a little bit left of center. Mm. And I'm pretty like American, all things considered. Uh, but I find maybe with other improvisers as well that are immigrants, I'm always like charmed by the uh, verbiage that they use. Like, they just come at things from a little different uh, point of view. Right. There's, like, an extra layer internally before before you, you choose the words that you want to settle on. 
Yes. There was a, uh, I know there was uh, Eric Tang on Wonderland. Mm-hmm. He's from China, so mm-hmm. I think he sometimes uses words that are like refreshing in a scene that are like, oh, what a fun way to describe something. Yeah. That's uh, very inspirational for a scene partner. Yeah. I find. It doesn't, every now and again, when your attention is called to just how lovely words can be, uh, um, like one of my regrets about it, well, regret is not the right word. This actually plays into my point I'm about to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm finding that the first thing to go with aging for me, my body's in pretty good shape, my mind is in good shape, except for my ability to recall words, which I'm, I'm, I've, in the last two years I've noticed is rapidly developing. Mm. I just don't have access to the vocabulary I used to have. That's scary. It is a little scary. Sounds scary. A little bit. And and I looked it up and that's what's supposed to happen. It happens in your mid thirties. Um, so that's fine. Yeah. But I, I used to I used to have a mind that could soak up words and soak up grammar with with very little effort. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really pleasurable thing to read and, and I used to really enjoy writing because I would be surprised at <laughs> stuff that I kind of implicitly knew and, and words that I would pull out that I implicitly knew but never really thought about. Yeah. And now I don't have access to them. And there's there's something about encountering people who have have curious word choices or find a way find a way to communicate themselves that just catches you slightly off guard that can kind of this is so uh, 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 like hoity-toity feeling, but like it can just bring a sense of like new perspective to the way that you see things. Mm-hmm. It's really nice. It can be a, you know, a breath of fresh air. I like it. Yeah. Because they, I find immigrants, they know certain American phrases and I know certain American phrases. Um, but sometimes, especially people that have been here for two, three years, mm. when they try to paraphrase that phrase, it comes out very, very enjoyably amusing in the best way yeah my like story about my mom she wanted to rent a little lord fauntleroy Mm -hmm. instead of version the little lord fauntleroy 1980 version she said virgin Mm -hmm. uh instead of sheet of paper she'd say shit of paper Mm -hmm. just fun fun accidents like that can happen yeah that's just mispronouncing words for my mom other people just (laughs) uh there was a class and a student said uh uh puberty hair in reference to the hair that one grows during puberty. Which is like, a great. very, very apt description. Very apt. It was very funny. Yeah. It was a very fun scene. Yeah. But I want to, yeah. if you don't mind, talk Please. about Judaism for a moment. I love it. Um, uh, and its impact on you. I don't even know exactly where to begin with this, but it... it so you, you had said that you had several years of Hebrew school. I did. And also that your parents didn't want... A religious education for you. Or That's didn't. right. I was raised an atheist. Yeah. My father was a very active atheist. Whenever we watched an awards show and someone thanked God, mm-hmm. my dad would go, <laughs> he didn't do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. So uh, I was mostly raised atheist, but I was also a Jew mm-hmm. in Russia that was anti-Semitic. So even though I didn't necessarily believe in the religious aspects uh, apparently we got the label. Mm-hmm. Like my older brother, who's six years older, was 10 when we left, and apparently he got taunted mm-hmm. for his Judaism. I guess that's something that, whether you believe or not, it, 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 it's hard to to not feel that sense of identity. Yeah. I definitely feel it. I like Jewish scenes that yeah. I get to, you know, I got those references. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
And do you identify culturally as a Jew? I do. Yeah. I went to Birthright, Israel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I went to a dentist recently that was in a Hasidic neighborhood because mm-hmm. I'm in uh, Williamsburg. And uh, I got to sit in the waiting room and it was divided by men and women, hmm. which was refreshing. Yeah. Uh, you know, totally like silly yeah. in one sense, but in another sense, I was like, oh, this is nice. Yeah. Tradition. Uh, yeah. I, 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 yeah I get that. And uh, the person cleaning my teeth was like, Golda, do you have time? And just even hearing the name Golda, like warmed my heart. Yeah. When I was younger, I thought everyone was Jewish because I went to a Jewish school. When I found out that it was like, one percent of the population of the world. I was like, "What?" Because <laughs> I, I was in the Skokie. I grew up in Skokie, which was a very Jewish neighborhood. Okay. So I just thought like ninety-five percent people were Jewish. Yeah. Or fifty at least. Yeah. Not one. I still can't believe it. <laughs> My exposure. I'm like a very watered-down Jew myself. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, very watered-down. And my exposure was was just going to temple on the holy days in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And every every Jewish person that I met was a refugee from the Second World War. Mm. So the youngest Jewish person I met outside of my own immediate family was, must have been, I don't know, 70. <laughs> and that's what it just associated to me was just old people. <laughs> but there's something about, I don't, do you read Hebrew? Do you speak Hebrew? I I mean I had three years I, I have a little no I don't yeah the short answer is I don't yeah but I should yeah I've definitely taken years of studying it and then forgot it all yeah doesn't that suck putting all that effort into it wearing those grooves in and then and then it's just kind of gone it must be in there somewhere a little bit after birthright I signed up for another Hebrew class yeah two months yeah didn't didn't catch one day I'd yeah. like to revisit it it's a beautiful language. It sounds beautiful. It's beautiful to hear. I loved. I loved hearing Hebrew being sung by the cantor on the holy days. Mm. It's a very. It has a great sense of mystery to it. I found. And, yeah. And it, where whereas going to church would be very boring to me, going to temple on the holy days was very boring in a very different way. That you know, like it. It, it was boring, but it felt. How do I describe how it felt exactly? It was like boring, but it was vastly boring. It was like boring looking up at the cosmos yes. versus, versus just kind of having your time It's a very, wasted on a Sunday. Yeah. I don't know why that is. Just because it's so old? Well, if it, an old religion? I think so. It feels otherworldly. It, it, it feels very ancient. Mm-hmm. And, and the language itself has this beautiful nuance to it where it's just heartbreaking to hear it. Mm. It, it, it. There's a lot of emotion in, in spoken Hebrew and sung Hebrew. It's a very, mm-hmm. very heartfelt religion. And, and my experience was being surrounded by old people. So it just felt like you're tuning into this frequency coming from a completely different world, going back beyond recorded time. That's always how it felt to me. And so if I'm bored, that's a small price to pay f- for tuning into that wavelength. Yeah. I'd like to revisit a temple as an adult. I haven't been since... Yeah. Second grade. Yeah. When I got pulled out, uh, I remember going to temple every day at school and it would be very dull. Hmm. I would look forward to the carrying of the Torah because then that was some excitement. You got to lean in and kiss your finger and kiss the Torah. That was an exciting moment. Mm-hmm. 
Otherwise, I, I would spend the time just counting how many people were in the room. Yeah. So as to not fall asleep. Yeah. Uh, but I love it. How was Birthright for you, out of curiosity? Oh, it was so good. You know, because I lost track. I really assimilated. I don't have too many Jewish friends uh, before mm. maybe coming to improv in the theater community. Mm. And yeah, I went to NYU. I, I can't say I had too many Jewish friends during my time there. But I went uh, at age 26, and when you land, they say, welcome home. <laughs> and it's so cheesy, and, I'm, and right away I'm like, I am home. <laughs> and it's weird to be in a place where everyone is Jewish. Yeah. Like, not, not even like the suburbs of Chicago, but like everyone. Yeah. And uh, so that was magical. The fact that it was free was great. Uh, it was cool to see, you know... Jerusalem and all that stuff. I didn't realize that Jerusalem is quartered and there's like a Muslim part and like a Catholic part. And uh, I was a little annoyed like when I'd ask questions like, oh, what's, uh, what's up with this Muslim part of the holy city? And they'd be like, oh, you'd have to go on a Muslim birthright or something. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't want to mm-hmm. go into it. And, and there was a big pressure to um, hook up I don't know if you, you do half the trip with just these American kids. Mm-hmm. And then uh, halfway through the trip, like eight sexy soldiers come up, mm-hmm. four men and four women. And then, and then you're just like encouraged to drink in excess. It was my experience and like make out. But uh. as a homosexual <laughs> man, I was like, wow, I'm not going to make any Jewish babies here. Yeah. Oh, is that really like the encouragement is to, I, I think to the, populate? The pressure is to get married, to and stay, then remain. Wow. or to bring money, or just to have a fondness for the country. Yeah. So you could go back to America, raise money, send it back, or just, you know, always keep it top of mind. And it works. Yeah. I, I definitely have a fondness for the country. I have such mixed feelings about my lack of feelings for Israel. I, and this I think is, that's okay too. Yeah, it, it, it there, there's a little bit. This is a horrible and embarrassing thing to admit, but there's a little bit of like, oh god, glad I'm not over there. Attitude toward, towards Israel. It, it's like listening to like your bickering, insane neighbors upstairs, and instead of like intervening or having <laughs> an opinion, it's just like I'm glad I don't live with those people. Mm-hmm. It's 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 everything is too intertwined and too insane and, and too problematic for me to think about. Yeah. And when you try to pick it apart, it, it, I have family members who have very strong opinions on Israel both ways. Uh, uh, and I don't. And sometimes that makes me feel like I'm a bad person. I mean, why should you have a strong opinion? Yeah. It doesn't have what I perceive as a direct and immediate bearing on my life, yeah, except for the fact that the ripples of Israel have a direct and immediate bearing on my life. That's true. I, that's a, yeah, the ripples. That's why you should. That's why you should. <laughs> that's why you should. But Some, it's, Someone listening is like, oh, oh yeah. you should. Yeah. I'm willing to be persuaded one way or the other. And, and you know, there's atrocities on both sides of things. Absolutely. Uh, um, I'm willing to listen to any argument that anybody wants to tweet at me yeah uh i would say that when you're in the uh country itself it's very lovely yeah you know so yeah beautiful beautiful land did you have like a religious experience when you were there did you develop the jerusalem syndrome 
Mm-mm. Yeah. No. Mm, the Western Wild. You know, I, I was constantly reminded by the unfairness of certain things, especially mm-hmm. the religious sexist stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, we went to the Western Wall. The women in our group were not allowed to, like, pray or celebrate. They could maybe quietly pray while the men, myself included, were in- danced around with the other, like, Israel citizens mm-hmm. around the wall for, like, an hour. Time passed while the girls were just, like, waiting, having to wait. And yeah. I, I felt very bad about that. Yeah. Not cool. Yeah. It's another one of those one of those things where like, oh God, if I had to be pressed to the fire, we could get into a conversation <laughs> about this. But you know what I mean? Like the fanaticism is so dispiriting. Mm-hmm. On any side, fanaticism is just the most dispiriting thing in the world. Absolutism. Yeah. The letter of the law being substituted for the spirit of the law. Because to my understanding, well, I'm not even going to get into this stuff. I, <laughs> I don't want to have this conversation. Um, I had a fascinating conversation with Jeffrey Sweet one time about uh, the Americanization of Jews from Russia specifically. And, mm-hmm. and that, that the population of Jewish refugees from Russia basically created satirical theater in, in the United States. Mm. Wait, when, when is this? Uh, when did this start? Do you know? The, the actual like immigration? The, the the birth of this satirical uh, theater. Uh, well, 1987? 87. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it times in very nicely with your arrival. Uh, no, no, like the early Broadway folk yeah. were almost exclusively Russian Jews who, who, who Americanized and assimilated and, and had a very um, kind of double-edged relationship with the country. They were kind of the quickest to assimilate and the quickest to Americanize and the quickest to to rush to Broadway and Hollywood and, and create the sort of popular image of America. And they were also the kind of fiercest critics of, of, of the powers that be, having remembered the Cossacks, mm-hmm. you know, very, very recent in their memory. It's an interesting conversation. Um, yeah. Do you know, do you remember why they flocked to it? For the pogroms. Turn of the century. No, why they flocked to theater. To theater? No, I don't. That's a good question. Do you have a do you have a take on that? Gosh, I don't remember. Yeah. I know PBS has a wonderful documentary, Broadway, a Jewish legacy. Perfect. PBS on demand. I watched it. I forgot why we have such a legacy on Broadway. <laughs> okay. But we do. <laughs> yeah. We have a whole documentary devoted to it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I wonder if it has something to do with with the legacy of like deep feeling and 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 there's something very very performative about services in a temple. I mean, this is me just like taking real serious shots in the dark. I yeah, really but know. I feel like churches have services too, and yeah, and and shows. Yeah, the Passion of the Christ. I guess. I think that's a big big one. Yeah. Um, something about the arts and suffering. Mm-hmm. You know. I feel like we we have suffered mm-hmm. as a collective people, um, and I think something about going through uh, something traumatic kind of opens you up to the arts and to trying to understand the human condition mm-hmm. versus just everything being peachy keen all the time, right? Or 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 everything being kind of fatalistic too. There is something to the Jewish character that yes. that kind of resists fatalism in that sense of. Of, there's always the sense of things can be improved 
and you can improve things through through culture and argument and and activism right like as opposed to like a fatalism of like calvinism let's say which is like you're just already damned and there's no point in in galvanizing your mental forces to try to anything better yeah I really don't know. I'm, I don't know either. I'm talking like I have a college education. It right sounds now. like you do. Uh, so Chicago is where you, you Chicago. To. What's the story from Chicago to New York? Because when I met you, I'm very curious. I don't know exactly where you came from. I met you and you were already 100% fully formed, brilliant improviser and amazing comedian. And Thanks so you, much. you were one of those people who was like, oh, who, who is this guy? Where did you come from? So what's your story? How did you get into comedy and theater and entertainment? Um, oh, one, this kind of touches onto the immigrant experience and the weird things that immigrants sometimes say is that I came when I was four and we learned English through pop culture. Mm. You know, you learn the phrases of the time. Uh, I pity the fool mm-hmm. would be the 1987 type of phrase. Um, so I pretty much learned English by watching a lot of TV and a lot of pop culture and uh, watching and listening to a lot of musicals. And uh, I think that's where I fell in love with uh, musicals and with the performing arts was that's just, it just consumed it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, and I think this was true for my whole family. We all loved watching musicals and listening to musicals and old movies, Joe versus the Volcano, mm-hmm. uh, Little Mermaid, things that you could follow yeah. with a minimal English. Yeah. Um, so my brother did theater. He's older. He's six years older than me. Uh, and I looked up to him a lot, still do. Uh, so he did theater. He was into films. So I pretty much he showed me all these movies that I needed to see. Mm. You know, when I was old enough, I got to watch Indiana Jones and that blew my mind, you know? So he, he just curated all these movies yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, so when I got to high school, I did theater like he did theater. Uh, before high school, I would watch him do theater and, and I was really into that. Uh, so I got into theater there. Uh, in terms of improv, I think I discovered that with Whose Line Is It Anyway? like many folk mm-hmm. did. Uh, I got cable at age 13, and I was, you know, Comedy Central. I was like, uh, something's got to be on Comedy Central, and it was like all these horrible stand-up specials. But it, whose line is it anyway? It was on there. The, the British like, version. The British version, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the reruns. And it was great. I loved it. And I was like, wow, they make up songs on the spot? Uh, that can't be done. I can't do that. Yeah. So I kind of gave up on that. Um And then after high school, I kind of gave up on theater and went into film because that's what my brother did. Mm -hmm. Actually, my brother double majored in film and musical theater, but I was just like, let's be practical. I was very practical. Mm -hmm. Film, they make tons of movies. I'll go into film. Theater, how many plays do they make a year? Probably not that many. That's not a career. Maybe seven. Yeah. And who sees it? Nobody. Everyone (laughs) sees a movie. (laughs) So I went to NYU film school. I don't even know why I chose NYU. I think maybe because Theo Huxtable went to NYU. It was so slapdash, kind of expensive. Yeah. But uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, NYU sounds good. Martin Scorsese went there. I'm like, oh, sure, that's, that's good. So did that, got into editing because that was a practical job in college. They were like, uh, editing? If you're an editor, you'll always work. And I'm like, well, I, I want to work. 
So I became an editor. And it wasn't until I was 28 and my friend invited me to her level one show, my friend Marissa, the UCB, and I went to see it. And she didn't invite anyone, just me, because she thought I would enjoy it. Mm. And I did. I loved it. And I was like, okay, I'll try this. And then the day after I turned 28, I signed up for a class and I fell in love with it. Yeah. Yeah. I always kind of regret that I waited 10 years since coming to New York to start. But better late than never. It's hard to imagine that you'd be any better if you had 10 more years of experience under your belt. There, oh, that's nice. Yeah. There's Thanks. like a saturation point where <laughs> where a person is just so good at improv, both technically and also having a voice with something to contribute and having a voice that, that is honest and, and original to that person. That it's like, well, if you were doing it for 25 extra years, does it really make a big difference? Yeah. I, I Maybe it would have been... Happier for 10 more years. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I was perfectly happy, but I could have been happy. Yeah. I, I, I have some of the same things in common with you. Uh, um, I didn't choose editing. Directing was my thing in college. I also went to film school, and, mm-hmm. and I chose the stupidest, most nebulous <laughs> thing that has no practical application whatsoever. But I also I, I, I grew up really believing in the relevancy of film as a cultural as a cultural phenomenon and, and, and not just entertainment, but, but something like really mean, it meant everything to me. And, 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 you know, you, it represents where the culture is at and, and, and there's a dialogue to it. And it turns out I was thinking about the seventies and, and <laughs> not really keeping up to date with some of the technological trends that were going on. Yeah. So I've, I don't know if you have this experience too, but I was kind of interested in, in live theater actually when I found that felt a lot more direct and relevant to me than a lot of the movies. Movies, by the time I left college, felt sort of fractured. It didn't feel like everybody was watching and thinking about the same movies. Yeah. I could be wrong about that. Uh, I, I would agree with that, definitely. Hmm. It's a very different experience. And I mean, I loved high school theater and I loved uh, you know doing theater now. Yeah. I love that connection with the audience. I love uh, experiencing it together. Like when I'm in an audience watching a Broadway show, I have very uh, clear memories of exactly where I sit, you know? If I watched a show from the blast row or from the side balcony, you know, I, I, I know that show from that point of view and it sticks with me. Yeah. Even 20 years later, yeah. I still remember where I was for every show. What, what are the shows that made a big impression on you? Oh... Gosh, um, uh, I think the first one was like a Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs thing that the high school, I was like in grade school, and I was like, wow, they're on their knees, and it replicates a short height for these people. I was like blown away by these costumes that they put their shoes on their knees and walked around, and it was like hysterical. So that left an impression. Um, There's something kind kind of wonderful about like high school drama productions. Yeah. I love them. I, I still think this is me romanticizing them, but I still think they rival like anything. <laughs> Certainly not in terms of quality or, or production value, but but in terms of there being just like a, a little miniature world in the middle of this other world that you're already in. Mm-hmm. Pound for pound, nothing beats a high school production. <laughs> and when you're young and you're seeing older kids do that for the first time, it really is like a very magical kind of experience. There's something very like, like, oh, this opened a new door in my mind now. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. I would also say that 
a lot of them are not that good. Sure. My, yeah. my brother would say that too. Yeah. Who had to go see my shows. Yeah. And I was like, oh no. Well, I don't think it's the same thing. <laughs> being older and watching younger people perform it is not necessarily the same thing as being younger and watching. Oh yes. W- yes. Watching if you, if you're a freshman watching seniors perform it or you're an eighth grader watching freshmen perform it. Yeah. That's really something. It's something. And I remember being a kid watching musicals, whether in high school productions or Broadway, and always having a feeling of joy and sadness, mm-hmm. like right around the intermission or throughout the whole two hour show, I'd be like, ah, if only this was my life yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, the sadness would be like, ah, I got to go to school tomorrow and there's not going to be singing. There's not, not going to be everyone knowing the choreography. Yeah. You know, I wish I had that magic the next day. Yeah. And I always felt that sadness. And, uh, yeah. I felt that too. And and I think that was part of it was like, it's kind of like Christmas vacation. <laughs> this is going to dry up. And, and later on when you're working on, on a production, mm-hmm. there's just that, that great bittersweet feeling just when you're about to open the show that you know that all this hard work is about to pay off and then it's over. And all the special after hours at the school are going to go away and, and this like bond that you develop with people, it's like a really intense emotional connection you have with people and, and that's going to go away and it makes you feel very sad and very glad to be there at the same time. Yeah. Luckily my school had a wonderful theater program Yeah, and, uh, once one show ended, another one began. That's great. So, so I, once I, I kind of tiptoed into it like winter of freshman year mm. and then after that I, I was just there. Till, till the end. Community theater. Mm-hmm. There really was no break, luckily. Mm-hmm. It was great. And then I don't know why it took 10 years off after that. Yeah. To be an adult. To be an adult. I said, I'm going to put on my adult hat. Yeah. Pursue film. Yeah. And be an adult. Which is a very smart choice. Yes. It's the right thing to do. And being an adult is what buys you the opportunity to get to pick your pleasures later in this life. That's true. I think... Uh, uh, that so much of my attraction to improv comes from trying to preserve that kind of high school community production feeling that, that DIY thing where on, on no budget, not being necessarily the best actors in the world, but having a a kind of like a rough edge charm to it, Mm -hmm. you can end up creating something that feels more spectacular and more moving and more magical than something with great production value, but that feels kind of cynical or 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 um, too slick. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true for movies as well. Yeah, you, it's got to come from the heart. Yeah, yeah. I think people can tell yeah. when it's coming from a place of love, and you uh, measure your success in terms of how much you love what you're doing versus if anyone else does. Yeah. That's one of the things I find so appealing about this branch of the performing arts is, is sincerity has a lot to do with it. The people who really love being there and really love doing it are just as often as not the people who are really good at doing it. And I think that there are other branches of performance where you don't have to have that same, you can be a little more cutthroat or, or, self-centered or whatever and be very very good at what you do you don't have to have that same kind of kind of um your personal fingerprints don't necessarily need to be on everything that you're creating whereas Mm. like improv and sketch comedy that's a world that i don't know it's funky and imperfect 
mm-hmm. and rough. And I love that. Yeah. It, 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 it favors people who bring their heart to it. And I love that. Yeah. I can't imagine someone continuing with improv and not having their heart in it. Yeah. That's kind of what's nice about it. It's built into it, it there, because you can't get anything <laughs> from improv. There's, yeah. there's no reward possible at the end of that tunnel. Yeah. And it, you lose a lot of money on the way there. You lose a ton of money. And you really got to love it. You to do. Be like, buy money. Who needs money? It, it, you're on a road to nowhere. <laughs> and well, that's not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. You're, you, you're, you're on a road to loving what you do. That's true. I... I I I think that improv is a road if you put all your eggs on the improv basket, real assuming that you're going to have some kind of career in performing arts. Based on improv alone, you're going to be a very unhappy 50-year-old person because nobody's going to come <laughs> to hire you out of your improv cast if that's all you're doing. Yeah. Um, excuse me. But that being said, I feel no cynicism whatsoever about being a devoted improviser. And recognizing that it's not a career step. It's a career step if you want it to be. And you have to do other stuff to make it a career step. Yeah. But it really is this thing that you show up to do simply because your heart is in doing it with the people that you want to be doing it with. Mm-hmm. It's quite a lovely thing. Yeah. It's very lovely. Yeah. You meet a lot of great people. Yeah, you do. Who also do it out of love. Yeah. So there's just a lot of love going around. Yeah. It's great. So you started... Ten-year break, and then you you saw a class show at UCB. I saw a class show. Can't remember a thing about it except for my friend being in it. Yeah, uh, but I loved it. Signed up for a class, and then I was at an ad agency at the time, quote unquote, succeeding because mm-hmm. I was like working on commercials mm-hmm. uh, that are were on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, was that so from from your tone? I'm judging that that's a hollow success. A superficial success. Oh, I, you know, I, I'm not into uh, commercialism or advertisements. And unfortunately, that has been pretty much most of my income has come from either advertising or market research into advertising or mm-hmm. selling something to mm-hmm. people, uh, which is great. You know, I guess that's how the system works. That's why there's commercials on TV and stuff. It keeps TV stations open. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, it's a little hollow. I'm not into the material possessions, necessarily. Mm-hmm. How, how long were you doing that before the, the sheen wore off of making it in the biz? Um, I don't know. Just about... Uh, how long was I doing what? Uh, adver- Ten years? Advertising. Oh, I mean, I'm still doing advertising. Mm-hmm. It's still a good living. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, so I still depend on advertising. Okay. And the I money you off, that sorry. it brings. Yeah. No, 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 you didn't. <laughs> um, ba, 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 ba. So, yes, I wanted to do something that was more than just selling things to people. Mm-hmm. Although I understand it's important to sell things to me. As someone, I worked as a waiter in retail at Old Navy. You know, my whole life has been selling things to people. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to do something that means more. Mm-hmm. Like, even if we're selling a ticket to someone, the mm. ticket opens the door to an experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that that feels a lot uh, more uh, fulfilling. Yeah. Obviously. So I took the class. I was uh, kind of like in the closet, so to speak, about being an improviser. Mm. And I think that was a whole coming out that took many years as well of like f- 
being like, yes, I'm an improviser. To who? To other people? To like, other people. Yeah. Like when I was at the ad firm, I'd be like, I got to leave uh, early on Wednesday. I got a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't even tell people that I was doing it because I felt silly. What about it? What What about it felt silly? Yeah. That I would pursue something. With no. With. Tangible. Yeah. Reward to it. Maybe, or maybe I thought people would think I just wanted to be on SNL or uh-huh. was, I don't know what I was afraid of. Yeah. Are you, how much stock do you put in other people's thoughts about you? I think um, in some, in one sense, a lot. Mm-hmm. In another, none, mm-hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I grew up with a lot of pressure to succeed in school and have good grades and be a good student. And I think I had a lot of pressure to fulfill certain roles my whole life. Be a good student, be a good employee, um, be a good son, uh, be straight. Um, Yeah, a lot of different reasons to be all these things that were not me, Mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I was a good student, but maybe I wasn't really. Yeah. in my heart. Yeah. I think I was. Um, <laughs> so it took me a while to realize that that other people's opinions isn't the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, it, but yeah, I think, think it affects me more than I'd like growing up. It kind of puts you in, in a little bit of uh, a double bind. I'm speaking as if I'm speaking for you and I'm not. I'm speaking for me. But sure. it, it puts you in that double bind of... of, of on the one hand, I want to make the best out of the hand of cards that I've been dealt in this life. And, and that means I want to leave a certain trace of my personality here. I want to say the things that I perceive and, 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 you know, hopefully leave behind something on the side of good. And and that means being true to yourself. And that means being, being, honest about your awareness of things and that means being open and and it means being courageous enough to speak the truth as you understand it mm-hmm. and then on the other hand you want people to like you a lot and largely that means uh, uh, ignoring those things that run the risk of having people not like you or make fun of you or think less of you or, or whatever that may be and so there's that double bind that kind of constantly keeps you at war with your own ability to be honest with yourself. Yeah. And you end up doing exactly the thing that you don't want to be doing. You're working against your own. You're spinning against the way that you drive is the way someone explained it to me. And I really like that image. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a road to not being happy. Yeah. Is what I found. Yeah. And uh, yeah. You're conforming to other people's expectations or what you perceive other people's expectations to be and and doing whatever you can to not stand out and violate those expectations. But then at the end of the day, you feel like nobody has a sense of who you are. Sure. That's very uh, clear, definitely in terms of sexuality. Yeah. I think I came out to my parents at age 23. Um But I knew since I was a child, you know? Yeah. So those moments when I had... You know, tried to pursue women and tried to follow that sort of thing. I was like so unhappy. Yeah. And well, who was I doing it for? I guess my parents a little bit and society a little bit. Yeah. But you know, that 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 there was no way to be happy 
doing that. Yeah. And that could happen with like pursuing a career that you don't want, that you think is necessary to do. Do you think it's easier? This is a loaded question. Do you think it's easier to lie to yourself about things like career than it is to lie to yourself about things like sexuality? Mm. Well, sexuality is so like ingrained and deep inside you. That's what I mean. It is pretty much uh, impossible to deny. I imagine, mm-hmm. although I'm sure some people are capable of doing that. With career, I think it's easier to just like, hey, at least I'm getting a check. Right. You're getting rewarded. You could get a promotion. Right. You know, you could succeed in this career that you don't want for 20 years. And you can also do the thing of like, well, I'm, I'm, I have an ulcer or I'm, I'm unhappy all the time. And mm-hmm. you can think of it as, but I'm just an unhappy person or I'm just a stressed out person or I'm just not good at this job. Yeah. And maybe many years can go by before you realize maybe <laughs> I hate this job. Maybe yeah. that's the problem. Yeah. It, 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 whereas sexuality seems to me to be something closer to like hunger in that it's kind of hard to deny. Yeah. That it's there. It's, you know, it, 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 that's not something that I, I think is as easy to just delude yourself into. I mean, saying. you could certainly distract yourself with yes. other things. Yeah. Uh, distractions. Yeah. Career, yeah. drugs, partying, friendship. Yeah. Um, Oh, that's just, interesting. Just like, ignore that. Like h- habitually being addicted to friendships as a way to distract yourself from how you feel. It could be. That's sure. very interesting. I know when I was in the closet, I would like wear baggy clothes a lot, just hide any sort of like identity. Yeah. And then once I kind of came out, I was like, eh, I think I wear tight clothes now. Yeah. Was was coming out? I imagine that has to be a huge relief. Oh, it was the best. And it was so sad because my parents were so sad. Yeah. But the minute that I came out, they were really sad and I was so happy. Yeah. It really didn't matter. Yeah. Like I was like, oh, they'll get over it. And I was so happy they knew. Yeah. And I was just like, awesome. I finally feel free. Yeah. I guess that's the test of when you're making a true decision for yourself, when you're being really honest with yourself, is that, that feeling Right, it must be that unmistakable thing of of suddenly recognizing that I don't care whether you're happy with this or not. I don't yeah. care if you agree with this or not. Yeah, this is true. This is true for me, and you can join me if you'd like. Yeah, and they did. Yeah, in time. Yeah, how did that change things for you? If you if you don't mind me, no, I don't asking. Uh, how did it change things? I think I just became more honest. Yeah, you know, when you're lying about something so important. I think it's easier to lie about everything else, yeah. too. You're just so not in touch with who you are. You're like, oh, I just really care about my career. Mm-hmm. I'm just Mr. Career. Call me Mr. Career. Mm-hmm. But maybe I'm not Mr. Career. Maybe I'm just covering up something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I came out, part of my coming out was uh, I just had to start talking about a lot of dick and balls, like vocally. Mm-hmm. Like almost, you know feel weird saying it now but you know just like there's no denying i need everyone to know that i'm thinking about dick right now mm-hmm. you know and that that changed the way i talked to people mm-hmm. uh, the way i joked i think i became more honest just all around yeah i wasn't I, yeah the fact that i could talk openly about what i liked was good and then that has to 
completely shift the balance of your of the force field of social network around you as well. Social network is such a gross way of putting it, but your relationships with people have to fall in place in a very different way than when you're lying to everybody all the time. Yeah, I would say I kept all my friends. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'd say not much really changed. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, this explains why you never had sex with women. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I get it. So I, I think, you know, all my friends are liberal. Uh, I, I don't think it really changed much except for my own personal feelings of happiness. And I was able to pursue, you know, sexual mm-hmm. relations with men, mm-hmm. which was great. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I was young, I just thought that was something I didn't, it wasn't visible mm-hmm. in the media. So now I think it's great that it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when... When it's not visible in the media, then how do you like process your own feelings and thoughts? Then it, it, it like are you looking at yourself as as like you have no place to plug into, right? Meaning you you, ha- yeah. you don't have other people, uh, public figures to look up to and say you yeah. don't have like an older brother, for example, to mm-hmm. use style to ape and and to come into your own. Yeah. So 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 it's very sad. Yeah. To think you're alone. And I, for a while there, I thought I was alone. Yeah. I thought the only people that were gay were like gay porn stars. Yeah. I was like, oh, those, and like Elton John or something. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. Uh, I remember the first time All My Children was the soap that my mom watched and I watched with her. And they had a gay teacher and it was a real cutting edge storyline. And when that came out, it, you know, it started a conversation with my mom and me about that. It didn't go like the way I wanted it to. Yeah. But at least it was like, I remember being like, oh, I relate to this teacher character mm-hmm. in my head. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Queer as Folk came out on Showtime, I would just like look at the ad and be like, hmm, gay people. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. The only way to be gay is to be on this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, God bless it, uh, I started high school theater and at age 14, I met like 15 gay kids. Yeah. So I felt very blessed to go to this school, meet all these gay kids, lesbians, couples. Um, so that was great. Yeah. So I think at age 14, I came out to my friend group. But even after that, I went back into the closet for whatever reason, for mm. college. I don't know why. So it was a, it was a journey. Yeah. Because I knew since I was a kid. Yeah. Came out at 14, had a boyfriend at age 14, and then I went back into the closet mm. until I was 23. Yeah. And then never looked back after that. Good for you. Thanks, Lewis. It was great. think of, like, my earliest sexual feelings, like, pre-puberty sexual feelings. I, I think I had, like, an awareness in kindergarten yeah. that girls are pretty. Or there was one girl, Ashley, in kindergarten, and sure. I remember having an awareness that Ashley's pretty. That's probably my first like pre-sexual sexual thought. Yeah. But you know, like I never, like I'm trying to think when I had a sense of how it felt towards other people. I don't know. I don't know. I I was young. Yeah. I would go to the pool. I remember being a young kid and telling my mom, mom, I look at penises when I go to the pool. Yeah. (laughs) And she's like, that's normal. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) But I was like, not the way I'm looking. Uh, my first experience of seeing other naked boys like turn me off to the human body forever <laughs> at JCC summer camp just yeah, because I was JCC. unprepared for it. 
because we went to the pool and then everybody got naked to put on their bathing suits and nobody told me everybody was getting naked. And I got so embarrassed. I immediately developed body shame instantly. Instantly. It's still weird. Yeah. Still weird to go to the locker room. I I know people do it. I go to the gym. Yeah. It's like weird. Everyone, everyone is, has junk. Yeah. I, I mean, whatever. (laughs) I, I, I wonder though, because I, I like I remember that really clearly, and I like it, it, it was not the thing of nudity; it was the thing of not being prepared that nudity was an option, and I mm-hmm. like feeling suddenly like I have to get naked now in front of people. Uh, immediately made me want to cover up for yeah. the rest of my life, and I wonder if that was something that was already inherent, and that was just kind of a trigger moment that brought it out, or I wonder if that was actually like a defining emotional moment that kind of set my neurons together in a very particular way to make me uncomfortable with my own body. Cause that has nothing to do with other people's bodies. I'm yeah. fine with other people's bodies it has to do with like my body is something that's meant to be covered up for all time. Yeah. It's, uh, I've definitely felt those things. You got to fight against it. JCC. Cause it's yeah. your body. Yeah. You gotta love it. Go yeah. to a spa, go to an all male spa and walk around naked. Yeah. It's very freeing once you get used to it. I'll try it out and I'm open to trying it out. Yeah. There's a good one in uh, the East village. All right. I'll do it. Great. Great. Love yourself. Love yourself. This brings me back to improv. Absolutely. We are, uh, um, as this is being recorded, we're getting very close to audition times here at the Magnet for both Megawatt and Musical Megawatt. I was curious if you have advice to give to people who are auditioning. It may be an uncomfortable question. I know whenever I'm asked if I have advice, I don't have advice. But uh, I'm curious being somebody who performs an awful lot and somebody Mm -hmm. you're now teaching level Mm -hmm. one musical classes here at the magnet Mm -hmm. Um, for anyone listening to this, I think it might be fun for them to hear some encouraging words from you about approaching an audition. There's a lot of fear in the air and a lot of people are climbing up and a lot of people are thinking about what the auditors want to see and not thinking about who they are and what they have to give. What, what, what would you have in mind if you were going in for this? Gosh, yeah, I wish there was an, I guess the easiest answer is uh, have fun. Mm-hmm. I think fun is the main thing. If you're not having fun, then it's kind of hard for the audience to have fun. Um, I think, you know, loving your scene partner is great. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you know the people that you're auditioning with um, or you can meet them very quickly and just love whatever quirky thing is they're, they're bringing to the table. Um, I always say be bold, be brave, have fun. That's like my little mantra that I sometimes repeat to myself before shows. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it is having fun and just doing anything, just get, getting out there and doing anything. I wish I had better advice. It's a, it's a tricky nebulous thing. How do you tell it, people to have fun? Well, cause you know, you're, 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 tr- you're talking to a part of a person's individuality that's not really the reasoning thinking part. You're trying to cut through the reasoning thinking part to talk more directly to like the heart of that person. Uh, You know, because when you're having fun, when you're auditioning well, when you're playing well, I really believe it's the heart of a person that is leading the way more than the student part of the person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like the student part of the person wants answers that they can write down on a scrib sheet and and study beforehand and have all the right answers to pull out in, in the heat of the moment. 
but you're really not talking to that part of a person in my experience you're trying to talk to like the deeper part of that person and so it's like advice on how to audition well always boils down to something that sounds not right because it's like i don't i smile <laughs> uh uh be loose be easy i don't know but but the it's because the words fail because you're trying to point them you're trying to point to the moon with your words you yeah. know what i mean i certainly think you can't do it for other people. Yeah. You know, you have to do it for yourself. Do the scenes that are fun for you. Yeah. Um, play the types of characters that you enjoy playing, whether it's, you know, high energy or like analytical. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever you as a unique performer bring, just, you know, trying to be true to yourself versus yeah. trying to think, oh, well, what is Lewis like? Yeah. Oh, Lewis likes object work. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to do what he likes. Yeah. Always a bad move. <laughs> Did you read Mick Napier's new book by any chance? No, but I read his old one. They just put out a new edition of the old one with uh, like updated guidelines on auditioning for stuff. I did read that. I forget what he wrote at the end of it's, that. It's good. One of the things, his, his advice for, for people auditioning is be funny. Be funny. Which I, I actually think is a wonderful piece of advice. And his reason for that is sometimes people will tell themselves being funny is not the goal. And so as long as I'm open and listening and receptive and try the best that I can, I'll be fine for an audition, which actually I think is also pretty good. Yeah, I like that. But his point is it leaves a lot of people in a powerless position where they get to an audition and are friendly and supportive, but don't really make any choices. Don't filter anything through an energy of their own that tells you how this person enjoys themselves on a stage. Yeah. And he he cautions that you beware that. That you, you have to leave that, that imprint of who you are. We have to get that feel for what is fun to you. Yeah, I think some people think, and Napier talked about it in that book, that being supportive means waiting for someone else's idea and doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he says just do anything that you want to do. Yeah. Like, just do something. Yeah. And uh, that's the best way to support your scene partner is by doing something that you love and your scene partner will do something that they love and together you guys will yes and each other. Yeah. But you're both bringing something up top. If you love what you're doing and if you believe what you're doing, it, a lot of times that cuts out a lot of the uncertainties and a lot of the hesitation and it frees you up to actually be supportive. Mm-hmm. It frees you up to actually be present to the other person and, and really take in what they're doing and really care about it because you're not caring about what you should be doing. You're just yeah. kind of already there. Yeah, there's no joy in trying to do what you should yeah. be doing. Yeah. If, if this uh, podcast, I feel like, is a theme yeah. of like, you know, you're not pleasing anyone by pretending to be straight yeah. or, you know, pursuing a career in film, you know, just do what, do what you want to do. Yeah, that's a pretty good theme. How, what, one of the things watching you play, uh, um, is not only that you're just amazingly funny and an amazingly wonderful improviser, but there's a there's just this kind of casual sense of ease all the time. It, it just looks like you're there to have a wonderful time, and it looks like you walk through the stage with such a sense of relaxation and such a sense of of just presence and acceptance of everything. Um, it looks like you're always really happy to be doing stuff. What do you look for when you're performing? What gives you that sparkle in your eye that makes it fun for you? Mm, well, I'm glad that that's how it seems. And very often I am 
very happy yeah. to be doing stuff. You know, we only have so much time on that stage uh, every night or a week. And it's just like very liberating. Um, what was the question? What, what, what do you look for when you're performing with somebody? Yes. What do you look to do that makes it a good time for you? Like what makes you want to stay in that scene? What makes you happy to be in a show? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think part of the fun is just uh, discovering something together is, is part of it. Hmm. Being, having an idea and having someone else support your idea, even if your idea is bad. Hmm. That's like instantly like, oh, thank you so much for supporting my idea. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to support your idea and together we'll make something wacky and unique and special. Um, and a little bit of like fucking around with the person. Especially if you know them well, mm-hmm. you know, you can pimp them into things mm-hmm. and they can pimp you into things. And it's a very playful energy. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I like that too. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm always hesitant to give the advice to fuck around with each other because I've certainly given that advice before <laughs> and then watched someone just do the most bad shit and saying stuff imaginable, you know, that, that is so coming out of a place of fear it's like when you see somebody who's in a very fearful place try to compensate for that by showing how unafraid they are mm-hmm. that it's like there's this like punk rock thing that they do that's like that's not you either yeah that's totally your fear attempting confidence it can't be the only thing that you're it doing is right. fucking around with right. people it's like when the moment presents itself yes where you can exploit something yes and 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 when you can invite the other person to the dance too when, when you give them an opportunity that you know is going to show them off yeah. well. It'll be fun for them. Even yeah. if they don't necessarily want to do the thing, Yes, you know that they will uh, have fun doing yeah. it. And the audience will have fun yes. watching them do it. They'll get applause for doing it, whether they're happy about it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's something to giving each other a little push in that moment. It doesn't sound like the friendliest thing in the world, but that little tiny push of like, get out in the spotlight. Yeah. It can be a really wonderful thing. Certainly fun if, if you know each other. Yeah. I, I don't think that's the way you should approach. Not in an audition. Not in an audition. Yeah. With, yeah. I don't think you have enough time to necessarily discover those moments. No, you don't do know you? each other that well. Yeah. And, and, and even if you do know each other that well. Not in a class. No. No. It... it your job in an audition situation is to look professional. Yeah. Look competent. Be funny. Be good. Be smart. Play with each other. Be supportive. Make strong choices for yourself, et cetera. Do the things that make you happy. Don't just do what you think the, the auditors want to see. It's your opportunity to let them see your sense of humor and see your voice and all that stuff. But be professional above all else. Yeah. Don't touch each other. Don't push each other. Don't use bad swear words. Don't use insulting words. Be respectful. Be considerate. Say thank you when you're done. Yeah. Don't hang around afterwards. <laughs> That's good advice. You got to be professional about that stuff. Um, if you don't mind me asking, so your you, your run with Deep Queens is coming to an end soon. Sorry. It is. Um, so now you're going to be in a transitional time with Megawatt right now uh, as the auditions are coming up. Uh, uh, and you're nodding along with Evan, who's sitting to my left, who's also nodding along. For a, for a performer as relaxed and as great as you are, uh, how was it for you coming up on the end of that run? 
Uh, it is bittersweet is the word I keep using. Because, yeah. uh, you know, as someone on a team, you know, you only have so much time with these teammates. Uh, even if you run for four years, you know, those four years are going to go up, you know, and at some point. Um, so we just got to cherish every moment that we have together. Mm-hmm. And I think the past three weeks since we've discovered that we're not going to be renewed, I think Deep Queens got very close. Um, and we realized just how much we mean to one another. And we've just really uh, appreciated each other these past three weeks. And I think our shows have, you know, shown that. We've just been having a lot of fun. Yeah. Now that we're just doing it for ourselves. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that we'll continue playing and in some capacity. Yeah. Maybe we'll get into the Chicago Improv Festival. We're going to find out this week. All right. Good luck, you guys. <laughs> Thanks. Keep the dream going. I'm a romantic, so, yeah. so I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll... we'll Keep playing in some way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, have you read Audition by Michael Shirtleff? No. It's a pretty good book. It's got some good improv advice to it because it's all about how to make choices when you have like your handed cold copy and you have 10 minutes to do an audition. Yeah. How to make choices to, to make it a memorable, powerful audition that brings out not your ability to create a character on the spot, but your ability to show people uh, who you are. Mm-hmm. And it's applicable to improv because it it kind of considers the same time frame of I have no time and I have to choose a relationship now and and I have to find something to care about now and I have to show my humor now and I have to find the the key thing to the scene now. You're making me nervous. No, I don't. This isn't audition advice, <laughs> no, but it, it it a big thing in that book is is romance. That finding the romance to a character, uh, um, you know, we fight for our dreams mm-hmm. and and we fight for the romantic possibilities and so mm-hmm. you're always looking for that romance it's what gives value to everything i just find it a very beautiful sentiment that, that neither here nor there that is nice. moving on um i would say oh one piece of audition advice i thought of yep. is uh don't play candy crush for weeks before you or for days i or read a book Instead of playing an online game. I've done both. I've read a book before an audition, and I've played a game. And I think reading something just activates the brain uh, in great ways. That playing a Candy Crush, which is very addictive, uh, does not. So that's a very practical advice that people could implement. Thank you. That's great advice. Yeah, you... you, um, uh, I read this book that was talking about the way that our, our brain is constantly going back and forth between basically looking at things in close up and looking at things from wide shot. Mm-hmm. We're looking at context and then we're zooming in to kind of look at an isolated detail and consider the merits and importance of that detail and then backing back up to a wide shot to kind of fit what we figured out into the larger picture and then zero in on another close up. And that's how we're thinking. We're constantly alternating between those things. And reading helps considerably with doing that because you're constantly having to associate details with the larger story that that is developing and and you are exercising associative thinking and also concentrated thinking. And I forget, it's like slow thinking and fast thinking all comes into play. And doing something like Candy Crush, I'm a big fan of Bubble Shooter myself Mm -hmm. on notdoppler.com. It just kind of tunes you into like one specific brain wave and it's yeah. hard to break that brain wave it's and like match the reds yeah and then you get on stage with that brain wave and you you are you're kind of stupid yeah i've d- done shows after like when i first discovered candy crush i'm on level 350 nice. for months now i've pretty much stopped 
Every once in a while, I try to get past it. Yeah. But there was a while when I was doing shows after playing Candy Crush, and I would be, like, very stupid on stage. Yeah. But reading a book, the last audition cycle, I was reading something about World War II, mm-hmm. and I was just like, oh, uh, I'll do something about World War II. I got all these details in my head. Oh, that's the best. Yeah. That's so good. I, I, nothing makes me happier than getting excited about a subject and then being able to just do that on stage later the week. Yeah. I love it. Finding out. I read Homicide by David Simon. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And for like months, I would manage to play cops in every single show, but just do like boring office stuff as (laughs) cops because I was so excited by like all the facts I was learning about it. I love that stuff. Yeah. Uh, And that's actually a great way to show off as as uh, um, unique and thoughtful and and to make a mark in an audition or in a show. It shows you not just making the same improv moves over and over again. Yeah, I, th- I think people are like, wow, how does he know all yeah. these weird details? Yeah. Because I just read a chapter about it yeah. yesterday. I may have told this on the podcast before. For me, my favorite example of that happening uh, um I was at home with Megan one day and she wanted to watch this documentary on Helvetica on Netflix. And mm-hmm. I gave her the hardest time <laughs> about this because I, I was like, it's the most boring. I don't care about fonts. I don't care about design, you know. And she finally twisted my arm into watching it. And it turns out it's a very entertaining, I was an idiot, very entertaining, watch it. And then that night I got to my show and our suggestion was Swedish typography. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> I know as much as anybody about Swedish typography, so I managed to do a 30-minute set about Helvetica, and it was great. I was like, yeah. oh, man, I would have been a complete moron had I not seen that documentary. Every little bit counts, my friends. Absolutely. You started teaching level one musical classes. Yes. How's that going? Great. Great fun. Yeah. I like teaching, like coaching, yeah. like thinking about it in terms of, like, overthinking it. Yeah. As an actor, you can only think about it like kind of as yourself, what you're doing. But it's nice to see those bigger arcs of like what works in scenes, what doesn't. Yeah. And being analytical about it. Have you had any discoveries recently that have taken you by surprise when looking at other people's work? Oh, gosh. I feel like I have discoveries all the time and then they go away. Yeah. Um, That's... that's my experience too. Yeah. It, teaching improv for me is as much about remembering stuff that I think I used to know as it is about coming up with new ways to, to teach. Yeah. It's just like an endless series of forgetting and remembering things. I think it just reaffirmed things that I'd already kind of was coming up with or coming to terms with like, um, just having fun in scenes. You do a wonderful exercise. I think I did it in your class. Uh, I would love to, mm-hmm. And it was, I love that exercise so much. And it's just nice to see people enjoy themselves yeah. on stage. Yeah. And I've, it's kind of, it's a lot more fun to watch people enjoying themselves on stage versus having a mock fight. Yes. So I think that was a big realization like, okay, love the thing you're doing. Yeah. If you're playing a bad guy. Yeah. Because in musical improv, there's narratives and bad guys are a common thing. Yeah. You know, be someone that loves doing the bad things that you do yeah. versus like just having a sour mood. That's something I need to remind myself about over and over again all the time is that it's always better when I love being this person and love doing the thing I'm doing yeah. than when I'm like 
quote unquote acting my way through it and showing you the layers of depth that I have, which always ends up just being like inner pointless friction. Yeah. It's just like brake pads uh, squeezing against my nerves. It's like pointless. Just love it. Mm-hmm. Be good at it. Enjoy it. It's so much more fun when you when you indulge in it. Yeah. I guess you get in trouble because you're trying to straight man sometimes, I guess. Yeah. And people trying to straight man are like, why are you being so weird? Yeah. That sort of thing. Well, there's an art to being a straight man. There, there is. Because art. you're providing the reality that allows for more of the insane behavior. And some people play play the straight role in a way that restricts and questions the straight, the, the odd behavior. And, and your job is to create the contrast. You have to be just reasonable enough with it. Um, uh, you know, that like some of the same laws of reality apply to this scene, but you have to be accepting enough. It's almost like you have to have like enough of a blind spot to allow this thing to continue. And when people play it bad, they just use it as an opportunity to objectify, another person's unusual behavior and kind of look at it from a distance and package it and label it and name it and, and make it safe to neuter it basically. Yeah, and then, and, then, it stops. and then it stops. And that's, that's a bad straight man role. You don't yeah. want to do that. You want to create permission for people to be as, as silly as they can be. Yeah. It's tough. Being a straight man is tough. Yeah. It's an art and, and it's an art that doesn't feel sexy either. I think a lot of people put the brakes on being a straight man or, or, or be, like question other people's motives or question other people's realities because they're just trying to squeeze some laughs out of what is essentially an unsexy role. Mm-hmm. If, if I show, if I'm, if I have a kind of smug way to point out the logic of what you're doing, I'll at least get a laugh because the audience is on my side. But your job is to kind of, your job is to get that other person to laugh. You get the scenes, the laugh. You don't get the glitz of that scene, and that's a real skill. That's a real. It, it takes a really great improviser to be able to do that, a really great comedian to be able to do it. And you have to have chops too. You have to not be afraid for the other person to get all the congratulations after the show is done. Mm-hmm. I love good straight men performers. Love them. Me too. Yeah, good setup artists are amazing. What can people expect from your level one class? They want to sign up. For your musical class, what are they in for? What are they in for? What do it you is, prize? Oh, it is so much fun. It's all about having fun. Uh, it's all about support. It's One thing that I love about this class, I've taught maybe two now, and I've got two on the coming up, um, two classes, is that that first class, they're so scared. Mm. They're like, I don't know why I'm here. Just, I don't know why I'm singing. I, I just, I want to do something scary, a lot of them say. And halfway through the class, they're like loosened up and they're like, okay, wow, we're doing it. Uh, the program's really great in that, you know, you don't need to be a singer to enjoy yourself there. Uh, some of the best musical improvisers we have at the Magnet are not professional singers. Uh, they're just having fun. And it's great to watch that first class go from being totally terrified up top to being comfortable in the middle to just like, absolutely loving life after three hours. I think that's probably true in a regular improv class too. Yeah. But there's singing and dancing. Yeah. Which is always fun. What do you say to somebody who says like, I could never do that. I'm terrified of singing and dancing. Uh, I I, I was there, you know, I watched whose line is it anyway. And I was like, I cannot do what Wayne Brady does. How does he make up a song? I I thought it was impossible. Yeah. And I denied, denied myself for so many years. And then as it turns out, there's just like, you know, you learn the tricks as to how songs are made in the class. And then you find out it is possible. And anyone can do it. Yeah. 
but you just got to take that first step of signing up. I think that's the hardest step. It was a hard step for me. Yeah. To sign up for my first class. But once you go, it kind of gets a lot easier. Please keep your eyes open for the next musical level one with Nikita Burdain. I think we're going to call it there. Thanks for talking. Again. Great. Yeah, been Thank a you real so pleasure. much. Uh, uh, where can people see you next? Next, uh, Tuesday nights at The Magnet with Musical Improv. Friday nights at uh, Premiere. Uh, I'm doing uh, The Hall of Mirrors on uh, Thursday nights. I'm directing Director that series. show. Please yes. come to it. It's a great yeah. show. Uh, that's Director Series on Thursdays. And after that, it's going to be Object Work on Thursdays, Director Series. Ooh, so Charlie Nicholson show. Very Charlie exciting. Nicholson. Very fun show. Please come check it out, everyone. Yeah. Nikita, thanks for talking. Thank you. And this is great. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Magnet Podcast. A couple of other thank yous. First, to our producer, Evan Ford Barden, to our engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg, to our executive producer, Ed Herbstman, and to all of the wonderful people that make up New York City, the Big Apple, the greatest city on the East Coast, which is where we broadcast to you from, right here on the New York City cloud. Thank you for listening to the Magnet Podcast. Please listen again. If you enjoyed the show, please go into iTunes and give us a positive, friendly rating. That is most welcome indeed. And also, hey good karma for yourself too so treat yourself well my friends thank you for listening thank you Nikita Bedane thank you bye everyone goodbye goodbye you've been listening to the Magnet Podcast This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.